Can you remember the last time you had an awkward conversation? Something someone said or asked that you didn't know how to respond to? Like maybe it was a moment where, where you wish you were doing something else anywhere else? And I'm not talking like just an inconvenient conversation, like when the dentist asks you how work is going while you have the spit sucker thing in your, mu- your mouth. Not that. More so when the dentist asks you, hey, how's your flossing been going? And not like when someone asks you a question after you just got done walking up a flight of stairs and you can only mutter a few breathless words. More like, why are you so out of breath just from walking up a few stairs? And beyond that, there are a few topics that we typically feel very uncomfortable discussing. Things like politics, especially when you know you disagree on certain policies or general motivations of a political party. Religion and and matters of faith can feel weird to discuss depending on the the setting or situation. And then there's, there's money. Personal finances are typically off limits in most conversations. I mean, a lot of couples don't even enjoy talking about their own money. How we spend, what we spend, when we spend our hard-earned cash isn't really any of anybody else's business. Yet here we are, week two of a series on living generously, merging two of the things I just listed, faith and money, and looking at how we, as followers of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, should approach our money. Which can get a little awkward. And I think this is why for for quite a while, a lot of pastors and and church leaders have avoided talking about this topic that Jesus actually addressed more than enough for us to have biblical content to teach from. Well, there are some pastors that most of us have heard about or heard firsthand that really love talking about money and how much you should give to them. But I'm hopeful and truly believe that our approach isn't rooted in the same prosperity gospel garbage we see on television from time to time. So so beyond it just being awkward, why do we not like talking about money in the church? If you're around some other people or you're just by yourself, I'd encourage you right now to just pause for a moment and process that question. Why do we not like talking about money in the church? If you're with your family or some people from from your neighborhood or you're just with other people, have a discussion about it. You know, as I thought through this question over the past couple weeks, for me, there were three things that came to mind. Number one, we don't like losing what is ours. That's why we don't like talking about money in the church. We don't like losing what is ours. Number two, the American church in general hasn't been trustworthy with finances historically. And number three, we don't like being told what to do. You know, maybe you thought of some of those very valid points, and if you did, good. Because I think the Apostle Paul addresses some of this, either directly or indirectly, in our text today. As Paul wrote letters to the churches he started or pastored or advised, this was a topic he didn't shy away from at all. And the church in, in Corinth was no different. Open your Bible or Bible apps to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to start right in verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. 
Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. In the, in the first part of, of this passage, Paul describes how the Macedonian Christians responded to news that there had been a famine in Judea and many were in need. Paul also clues us into the fact that the Macedonians themselves were facing extreme poverty that came through some sort of severe trial. Now, we can speculate what the trial was, but, but we aren't sure. Maybe they faced famine themselves or flooding or war. All of these were relatively common ancient forms of recession. But despite the hardship and financial stress experienced in Macedonia, they gave radically and generously to those who were in need. Now, why did they do this? Well, Paul writes that it was, it was like a chemical reaction. When their gospel-influenced joy came into direct contact with extreme poverty, a burst of sacrificial giving welled up into rich generosity. So we could say it's something like this. Poverty plus gospel joy equals rich generosity. And Paul isn't using these words lightly. You see, when we feel secure in our finances with, with money to spare, we, we typically give either out of some form of guilt or uh, guilt of, of having more than others or out of this unhealthy place that makes us feel good about ourselves or elevated above others. On the other hand, when we feel vulnerable and financially insecure, those motives go away. So if we give out of guilt or pride, then Paul right here is prompting us to get introspective and begin to take a deeper look at why we give. Because the problem with giving out of what is extra or what makes us feel good about ourselves is that we still get to hold on to our stuff. We still get to cling to what is ours. I get to hold on to what is mine. See, this is the real fear when we, when we talk about generosity. We feel like if we listen to, to these words and act on what is discussed, then we will lose what is ours. Now, let's just be completely honest about a, a couple things. And, and I want you to take some time to, to listen to these words that I'm about to say, because I think it's important. First, if you have, whether that be money, status, power, if you, if you have any of that today, it is due to the century you were born, the place that you live, and your talents, capacities, capabilities, and health. And as, I, as I've processed this thought throughout the last couple weeks, it's been, it's been messing with me. I mean, I've always been aware that, that when and where I was born has been very helpful in helping me to achieve any success I've experienced. And I think that I've been fortunate to have good health and be able to work and, and, and earn an income. But the most challenging thing to me has been thinking through the fact that my talents and abilities aren't things that I've earned. Sure, I've worked to get better at certain things, but I worked on them because I, I, I already had a certain level of talent or ability to, to begin with. I didn't earn my talents, I just have them. Take a moment to think about this with me. And, and maybe it'll mess with you too. When you were born, where you live, the talents, abilities, and your health have a direct correlation to your wealth. And, and I know that there's one thing that I didn't list, and it's something that most folks, including me, 
want to make sure they, they argue when thoughts of this nature come up. Hard work. And yes, hard work is important. I will never minimize the, the hard work that any person has put in or, or does put in. I mean, I, I think I'm a hard worker. I was brought up with a big emphasis on having a strong work ethic. My dad was raised by my grandfather, and my grandfather had farm chores growing up, which are way different than the suburban chores that my son has to do and still complains about, like kids these days, right? I feel like the older I get, I'm becoming more and more like those progressive becoming like your parents commercials. Uh, like, it's crazy how uh, close those hit to home. But a strong work ethic is important to me. However, work ethic on its own isn't enough to achieve wealth. I mean, go to, go to Haiti or Kenya or Mexico with me sometime and tell me that there aren't exceptionally and probably even exceedingly hardworking people that live there. But they are impoverished. Why? Well, because of where they live. Location, time, talent, ability, health, direct correlation to wealth. Here's the deal. We didn't earn any of that. We didn't. And here's how we can sum all this up. This is what all of this means. At the end of the day, if what I just said is true, and I believe that it is, then all of our resources, all of our resources are the gift of God. Does that, does that move you to think about what losing what is yours really means and the implications of that? I mean, it did for me. And, and here's the big kicker, as, as Pastor Timothy Keller writes, there is an inequitable dis distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess, it is injustice. See, there are some serious things to grapple with when we approach generosity with even a hint of feeling like or believing we are losing what is ours. This is why I think it's so beautiful what Paul writes in verse 5 about the Macedonians and such a great example for us. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God, by the will of God, also to us. All right, so let's say, let's say we grapple with our motivation and, and recognize what God implores us to do, but, but then the concept of, of being generous toward the church starts to cause some, some skepticism. This is where we face some more awkwardness when it comes to the church and, and money being the, the topic of conversation, and, and rightfully so. The church, and I'm, and I'm referring to the universal church, not, not Cornerstone, not this specific body of believers— but the church hasn't had a great track record when it comes to handling finances. And we've all seen in the news and heard the stories of churches falling into the corruption that John Calvin wrote about 400 years ago when he said, there is nothing which is more apt to lay one open to sinister imputations than the handling of public money. Greed has gotten the better of people within the church time and time again. And if you've seen that or heard about that, know how deeply offended Paul would be. Here's, here's how he wrote about this, this very thing 2,000 years ago. Skip ahead to verse 16. Don't worry, we'll, we'll come back in, in a moment to what we just skipped over. But, but here's what he writes. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. 
And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering. Like, just think about how much uh, emphasis he's putting on the, the care they're taking with the gift, the offering, the money, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. And pay close attention to these next few verses. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. We are taking pains to do what is right. According to this, what matters to Paul is not just that his own conscience is clear with regards to the way money is being handled. What matters is that it is plain to everyone who is watching that money is being handled with integrity and and in a way that that completely and totally honors Jesus. A, A church A body of believers that reflects the character of God will be marked not only by generosity in giving money, but also by integrity in handling money. If you see a church where that integrity is absent, I implore you to run. You see, I fully believe that the money given to the body of believers is sacred. It it has been given by God's people to be used for God's work. You know, when I was growing up as, as the child of parents who were both paid by the church to pastor and lead and care for people, my parents made it very clear how that impacted our family. Now, I remember one Sunday, I wanted to go to a movie with some of my buddies, and I, and I asked my dad for some money, and as he was handing me a $20 bill, he said, Steve, remember, this money was given to God by someone within our church family. Use it wisely. And I was just like, so don't get popcorn? Is like, is that what you're, you're saying? I don't, I, I got to see firsthand through my parents the thought and care and integrity and accountability and perspective that went into the, the money that even my family was given by the church. But you know what's really cool? Before, before my parents became pastors, my, my dad was extremely successful in title insurance and, and made good money. And I think the story I just told you about what my dad said to me when I asked for the cash was, was really my dad trying to get me to stop asking him for money because my parents handled money the exact same way before they were pastors. It was never theirs. They were followers of Jesus when they worked in the corporate world, and so just because they became pastors didn't mean they looked at money differently just all of a sudden out of the blue because now we got a new job. No, integrity, care, accountability, and generosity with their money was part of following Jesus. They took and still take pains to do what is right with their money. I'm so grateful for that example and insight. And I I think that should absolutely be true of all of us. It should be true of of the church and, and how this body of believers handles money with care and integrity and accountability, using it carefully with wisdom and and the purpose it was intended for. Paul is saying here that that he cares so deeply about the the accountability that comes with what has been given. And then he goes on to describe the integrity and character of of Titus and those that will be overseeing the the money. This matters to Paul. And it matters to us. You see, this, this involves all of us. But it also includes the leadership of the church. For what it's worth, coming from me, I'm grateful that Cornerstone handles money the way Paul writes about here with integrity and and accountability, and and that it goes toward helping people. 
I know I wouldn't work here if I thought this were any different. And whether that's through our, our buildings, our, our online stream, our staff, all the way to the programs, ministries, and, and people we support locally and around the world. From, from the folks who, who count the money to our finance team, to our CFO, to our staff, and to our, our, our lead pastor. But also, and more importantly, the people that make up this church family. Remember, church isn't a building, it's people. And the people within this church all have this same responsibility. And I see it. They are constantly inspiring me through their generosity, some of which never comes through Cornerstone, but goes directly to help people who are in need. If I'm describing you, just thank you for representing Jesus well, for giving yourself first to the Lord and to the rest of us. All right, let's, let's say we've, we've grappled with motivation and feel good about how the church utilizes our resources, but still don't love the thought of someone telling us what to do with our money. You know what's interesting? The reality is that people are telling us what to do with our money all the time. It's built into our culture. Uh, commercials, ads on our phones, billboards on the freeways. I mean, most of the things we come across are telling us what to do with our money. You need this. You need that. And we don't really have that big of a problem with culture telling us how to spend. But we often pause a bit more when our faith in Jesus dictates how we use our resources. So... Another question, do you think when it comes to how we should spend our money, we are more influenced by culture than we are the words and actions of Jesus? This is another great time to hit pause and discuss with the people around you, or if you're by yourself, just to process for a moment. You see, this is why I don't have a problem telling you what to do with your money, and not just because everybody else is doing it but more so because it's not an original thought. Like, I'm not just coming up with these things. When we teach on generosity, when we talk about money, it is 100% informed by Scripture and the purest of motives. So if, if we don't like the implications of what is being said, then, then we have to reconcile not actually following Jesus. And if we have any issues with that, we'll have some real issues with what Paul writes in chapter 8 and in the next chapter, chapter 9. Because generous giving is one of the most important ways we know that the grace of God has taken hold of us. Paul says this repeatedly in these chapters. In chapter 9, verse 13, he writes, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing, in sharing with them and with everyone else. Just, just look at what he says. Obedience that accompanies the gospel of Christ, constantly seeking to bring our actual lives and our, and our practices in line with Jesus. It, it prompts the question, if Jesus sacrificed everything for me, if, if, I, if I am now loved and secure in him, if, if, if I'm saved by grace, how should that impact the way I live? See, in this, in this verse... Paul claims that a grasp of the gospel naturally produces financial generosity in us. He, he says that financial service, which is the Greek word diokonia, and it means humble, costly service to the practical needs of others. He says this service actually proves that we are Christ followers. All right, go back to what we skipped earlier back in chapter 8. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
Verse 7, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. This is where I'll just steal from Paul and tell you what to do with your money. Excel in the grace of giving. Now, Paul added some more words to make sure his readers knew he wasn't just telling them what to do. He added the why. Good verse 8. I am not commanding you. I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do. But I, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnest, earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I love what Paul says here. It's like he knows people don't want to be told what to do, so right after he tells them what to do, he writes, I'm not commanding you. I'm just testing the sincerity of your love by comparing your sincerity to the sincerity of others who are following Jesus. Like gut punch time. And the reality is, when he talks about Jesus, he's saying, hey, that's who we get our marching orders from. That's who told us what to do with our money. That's who told us what to do with our lives. That's our example. The one who did not give out of what he could spare. Jesus didn't, didn't give out of his riches. He gave his riches away. Jesus didn't give because he had power to spare. He gladly lost all his power and became completely vulnerable for us. You see, if we, in our current cultural context, take seriously what Jesus said and what Jesus did, it has the potential to cause significant tension within us. Because gospel-shaped, gospel-balanced giving doesn't even begin until it entails sacrifice and scarcity. Just sit with that for a, for a moment. It doesn't begin until it, it, it involves sacrifice and scarcity. And if you're anything like me, the implications of this humble me and, and, and make me a bit nervous. The cosmic benevolence of Jesus forces me to ask, how can, how can I ex accept that kind of generosity and not live generously toward others? The gift Jesus gave in himself changes everything for us and from us. That, that gift tells us and informs us and directs us how to live and how to give. Now, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, you know, in life there are some moments where we get spiritual insight into the things we read and learn through some of our experiences. Well, my wife, Amanda, my son, Jericho, and I had an experience recently that undoubtedly gave us insight into some of what we've been learning today. As many of you know, we've been in the adoption process for six years, just waiting and waiting and waiting on, on God to bring another child into our home. And, and I'll confess that the waiting has turned into frustration and anger at points. Well, back in November of 2020, almost exactly a year ago, I, I got a phone call on a Friday morning from a friend that I hadn't talked to in over a year, and he asked me if we were still wanting to adopt. And I said, yeah. He said, cool, I, I have someone who wants to get in touch with you. Is it okay if I give her your number? And I was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. And, and I didn't really think much about it. Um, we've, re we've received a handful of these hopeful moments, so, so I don't get too invested anymore. Um, but I, even still, I went and told Amanda uh, what just happened in the phone call I received, and she's like, oh my gosh, do you know what I was doing last night? And I was like, no, there was a football game on. Like, I was watching that. 
And she, and she said, I was in our closet crying and praying and pleading with God to give us a kid. And that afternoon, I got a phone call from a young woman who was pregnant and wanted to meet with us. Um, we got together the next day, and she told us that she wanted to find a healthy home for the baby she was carrying. And that's when Amanda told her what she was doing a couple nights before. And the young woman said, wait, Thursday night? Oh, that's, that's so crazy. I was in my room crying and praying to God to find a safe and loving family for this baby. And then she said, after I got done praying, I felt like God was telling me to watch a sermon on the book of John. And she'd heard of Cornerstone Fellowship, so she started searching through our sermons online, and she, and she clicked on a link for a message on the book of John, and it happened to be a sermon that I preached back in 2017. And during that sermon, I shared our struggle and desire to bring a child home through adoption. And that's when she knew. She watched that sermon and she said, this is the family for this baby. Zakiah Paul Ingold was born in January and we took him home the next day. And the adoption was finalized last month. This is a, this is a picture of Zakiah. First of all, uh, I just want to thank all of you who prayed with us through this process. I've told, I've told Zakiah since the day he was born that so many people have been praying for him for years. It's just, it's just so cool to, to know that. And secondly, and this is, this is what I really want you to hold on to in light of our conversation about money and generosity today. My family knows, beyond the shadow of, of a doubt, that when you're given the gift of new life, it changes everything. I mean, it changes the way we talk. There's so many baby noises coming out of everyone's mouth in our house right now. It, it changes the way we spend our time. It, it changes the, the amount of time we sleep. It changes how we feel and process and think. And it changes the way we spend our money. Because diapers are still expensive, in case anyone was wondering about costs of baby things nowadays. See, when, when Zakiah's birth mom gave us that baby... It was a gift that shifted everything in our lives. And it's been so good, challenging in, in a lot of ways, but so beautiful and pure and, and right and lovely and just good. And I think the same is true for all of us. When we are given the gift of Jesus and the new life in him, it changes the way we look at everything at our time, our money, our relationships, our interactions, our lives. It should be challenging at points, but it will also be beautiful and pure and lovely and good because Jesus is a generous gift that at the very least prompts us to process the awkward topic of generosity and how it relates to our faith. But hopefully, and, and this is my prayer, that it pushes us to be people that pursue generous living. Let's pray. Father God, I, I, anytime I think about what you did on our behalf and the generosity that you bestow on us, on us and, and your benevolence and care and just how giving of a God you are, I, I want to say thank you. And, and, and I am grateful and thankful, but I know that doesn't even nearly feel like enough just to, just to be thankful, just to have gratitude. And, and I don't know if it is, God. Because I think your gift causes something in us. It, 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 there's a reaction that comes, a responsibility that comes with it. God, and I just ask and, and, and just plead with you that you would prompt and push us to be people that react 
and respond in the appropriate way, God, that your generosity would bring about rich generosity within us. God, that we would see needs and meet them, that we would have this humble service to people who are without or, or who are in need, God, that we would, that we would provide just like you do for us, God. Father, let this body of believers, this church, this fellowship be marked by generous living. Father, let us be known by that and let us represent that, that character of you to everyone we come across. Lead us, guide us, move us. Prompt us, push us, God through the power of your Holy Spirit, to do incredible work right where we find ourselves now. We love you, Father, and we pray this in the matchless, powerful, beautiful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before, before you uh, tune out or move on to the next thing or whatever, I just want to encourage you to just sit for a little bit longer and just process again. One more question. How has the gift of Jesus changed the way you spend money? Have an awkward conversation about it. Lean in and see what see what the Lord has for you. I love you. So glad to be with you. See it. We'll see you soon. Wait, wait. Before you go, three things. First, please consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful, hopefully life changing messages like the one you just watched. And number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it, or post the link to your own personal social platforms. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.